The 20th century didn't go easy on Berlin. Coming up, we'll explore what the city has to show you from its past hundred years, from the Third Reich and Second World War to the Allied airlift in West Berlin at the start of the Cold War. And this was an amazing propaganda coup for the Americans because the people who'd been the Germans' enemies up until 1945 were suddenly their best buddies, their best friends. Today, you can see Germany's commitment to democracy in the new transparent dome they've put on their capital building, the Reichstag. Where the light is coming in, shining into the parliament, and you can look down and see your legislators, your people who are making the laws as they work. Guides from Berlin recommend sites that bring the city's history to life. When you visit rural Romania, you might think that time is standing still. You'd be hard-pressed to figure out what century you're in in some of these villages. Leif Patterson introduces us to the best of Romania in the hour ahead. Come along. It's Travel with Rick Steves. European investment in its infrastructure is helping Romania gain fans as a bargain destination in the truly old world of Eastern Europe. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. I used to hate traveling to Bucharest, but we'll learn how Romania is changing and what it offers visitors a little later on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Let's start the hour with a look at how much the city of Berlin has gone through in the 20th century. After severe economic setbacks in the 1920s, Nazis and then communists asserted power. Then the Cold War brought a deadly wall that divided the city for 28 years. Now Berlin has been reborn yet again as the lively capital of one of the world's leading democracies. I'll never forget being in Berlin, I think it was 1999, and I happened to be there during the opening week of their new parliament building, the Reichstag, the newly restored. It had sat like a bombed-out hulk just on a no-man's land on the Berlin Wall for an entire generation. Suddenly, the Cold War is over, capital moves back to Berlin, Berlin needs a new capital building. Instead of bulldozing the old historic capital building, they renovate it, and they incorporate into it a beautiful glass dome. I was on the top of that glass dome, surrounded by emotional Germans, and it occurred to me, wow, the history that this city has seen. Today we're going to talk about the history that Berliners have gone through and how it matters to our sightseeing, and we're joined by two guides from Berlin. Holger Zimmer is a tour guide and a journalist, and Macy Hitchcock gives tours of the Cold War and the Nazi era as it applies to travelers visiting Berlin. Macy and Holger, thanks for joining us. Hi, Rick. Thank you. Holger, when you think about a German standing on the top of the Reichstag in 1999, teary eyes, they're old enough to remember when, when, when Berlin was essentially demolished. What did Berlin look like in 1945 when they were children? Well, there wasn't really that much left of Berlin, especially in the inner, you know, city center area around the Reichstag, the Tiergarten, like the largest green space that was basically gone. There was no trees left. Uh, I think about 40, 50 percent of the buildings in the inner city were completely gone. So it really was, uh, yeah, Berlin was hit hard, but, you know, for, for the reasons that we all know about. Right. And it really had to be slowly being built back. And I remember actually the Reichstag as a school kid. Like, we came over on a school trip to Berlin when I was, I don't know, like, whatever, 15, 16 years old. And the Reichstag was actually used for an exhibition on German history. So all the, the, the school kids would go there, but it was not a parliament anymore. It only came back after, as you said, reunification, that when the capital was moved from Bonn to Berlin, that they said, hey, we're going to put our parliament right back in there. So now it's amazing to have it restored and people can go, and it's really, it's like an open thing that people can visit and have a look what it looks like. 
And it's a powerful sort of symbolism because the people are literally looking down on their representatives. Absolutely. You sort can of just demanding that we're going to keep an eye on, on yeah. you guys and we're going to learn from our past. That's kind of so like really transparency, I think, is, is the word. We have this yeah. open glass dome where the light is coming in, shining into the parliament, and you can look and watch down and see your kind of legislators, your people who are making the laws and see as they work. So it's quite it's quite interesting. I think I don't know any other parliament that allows visitors right next to it, really. And tourists as well as local citizens are well, welcome to go there and, and celebrate what Germany is now and how it's learned from a, a tumultuous century. Holger, uh, you mentioned as a student you went there and there was an exhibit on German history right there in the Capitol building with, with all these emotional memories of, of the war and the destruction. I think that, was that called the um, Questions on German History or something like yeah, this? Yeah, Fragen an die deutsche Geschichte, exactly. And as a tourist, I went there and, and it was moved over later to the French cathedral. What is that zone there? Gendarmenmarkt. Gendarmenmarkt, yeah. 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 And uh, I, I thought, Germany is going aggressively to teach its young generation to learn from the history. And even today, I think, you know, maybe a generation ago, it was complicated and difficult to talk about. But today, you find German school groups going to concentration camps, going to exhibits about what happened during Nazi times and so on. And there's a real enthusiasm for learning about the history. It's Travel with Rick Steves, and our guides to the 20th century sites you can explore in Berlin are Holger Zimmer and Maisie Hitchcock. Holger is a broadcast producer with the city's public radio arts outlet, and he also leads customized tours of his city. Before relocating to Berlin, Maisie also worked as a broadcaster in London. Now she produces podcasts about Berlin and leads tour groups around the city. Maisie, when you, as a guide, welcome somebody to Berlin, how can you just in a quick nutshell explain what Berlin has gone through since the end of World War II until today? I know that's kind of ridiculous, but just in about one minute, can you give us a sweep? Of From the, the end of World War II? Until today, until freedom. You know, very, very quickly, it was divided in two. You know, the Allies got here first. They divided it into, oh, actually, into actually four parts. Uh, but you had West Berlin, and then you have East Berlin, which was taken over by the Soviets. West Berlin was run by the Western Allies, Britain, France, and America. Whatever side you were on, when Berlin was divided, that's the one you were in, basically. Mm -hmm. When the Berlin Wall was built, you couldn't go either way initially, so you were stuck there. You may have grown up under the Nazi regime, and you end up in East Berlin, You've got a different regime. You've got the Soviets. So you were liberated from Nazi yep. tyranny and, and this horror into a communist world, the DDR. Yeah. It's quite a trauma. You've grown up knowing one thing, which has been imposed on you. Then suddenly the Soviets are there. They were basically your enemies up until 1945. And relations don't really thaw very quickly. Uh, so you've got this new regime. You're under that. If you're lucky enough to be on the Western side, it's a different story. But you are also learning to love the Americans who are basically, you know, subsidizing and protecting uh, West Berlin. And I have to say, a fantastic propaganda coup uh, was the Berlin airlift when the Soviets tried to block off all the uh, road and rail routes to the west of Berlin in an attempt to kind of swallow up West Berlin into East Germany, into the GDR. And they failed because basically the Americans sent over planes every few minutes uh, from West German air bases. And this was an amazing propaganda coup for the Americans because the people who'd been also the Germans' enemies up until 1945 were suddenly their best buddies, their best friends. Perfect. And, and you have that Ich bin ein Berliner yep. business. And, yep. uh, and then there was a few very exciting and emotional and, and beautiful for media glitches where you'd have rock concerts or presidents on the wall declaring, you know, Berlin will, will be free. And then suddenly, before most people even thought, that might not even happen in their lifetime, 1989, Berlin is free, a uh, difficult time of uh, investing and, and, and knitting things back together. And today, 25 years after the fall of the wall or so, we are tour guides learning from the past. 
the Western Allies fight back with an airlift of 450 flights daily, carrying thousands of tons of food into the beleaguered capital, flying an air corridor threatened by red fighter planes. Now, Macy, you've, you work for a company, Insider Tours, that gives Nazi walks. And by the nature of the destruction of World War II, there's not a lot left physically. But as you walk somebody through Berlin, what might we see to uh, have remnants physically of the Nazi time? Well, I mean, there isn't very much left. But if you're really looking for it, you find things. Most of it, I have to say, was bombed. Hitler's Reichschancellery, which is in the centre of Berlin, very close to where the Reichstag is, the government building, that no longer stands there. That was destroyed. It was huge. It was a colossal structure. It was his kind of palace. But underneath that, you have the Führer bunker. Uh, And so you'll basically walk into that area and you'll get a kind of description of what it looked like. And then you look for the Führer bunker and there's nothing there. There's just a car park. Head round the corner in the old government quarter of the Nazis and you'll see the uh, air ministry, which was basically run by Hermann Göring. Mm -hmm. uh, And that's still standing because apparently it was used as a means of kind of guiding Allied planes. Uh, They left it standing, uh, the Allies, because they didn't, yeah, they needed to use some kind of marker. And they were actually using uh, what's now known as the Street of the 17th of June, which leads from the Brandenburg Gate down to the Victory Column. They were using that as a kind of guiding point for their bombs until the Nazis covered that in camouflage. So So the the German planes were using the glitter of lights on the Thames River to guide them up to London in the middle of the night. And the Allied planes were using the main boulevard and then this huge building, the Luftwaffe, the Air Force headquarters, as sort of a, a beacon to get to their target. Oh my goodness, I never realized that. And I wondered, Holger, when you think about going to Berlin today and seeing anything standing from Nazi times, it really is that Luftwaffe building. In fact, movies are filmed right there to give that sort of, you know, fascist kind of yeah, architecture. Yeah, fascist kind of architecture, stark, really bleak and kind of gray. And it's it's quite amazing that it's still there. But I think also things that you can't see are quite interesting because really if you're in Berlin, think about this Germania. You know, Hitler wanted his new capital and... The plans that you see about this, the models of the buildings, they're just they're mind-blowing. This is megalomanic thinking here, and that's something. So there isn't really much physically left, but of course the traces and the layers of history like, are everywhere, every step. You can Germania. see that. Wow. Hitler's uh, sidekick, Albert Speer, Albert Speer. was mm. his architect. And I, my image is they'd sit down and sort of like, oh, let's just take a break from this war and imagine what it's going to be like after it's over, and we're going to build this incredible city. It's actually called Germania. Germania. They're going to change the name of Berlin. Of course, yeah. Is and there any place to learn about that in your sightseeing? Well, Germania was actually because it was Hitler's vision for mm-hmm. the, you know, the new German Reich, the mm-hmm. Third Reich, mm-hmm. echoing the Roman Empire. Okay. So hence Germania, because that was the Roman name for, you know, Germany ah. or the area now known as Germany. There used to be an exhibit on Germania uh, that's unfortunately been shut down or closed. Mm-hmm. They do have the models do still exist, and I think you used to be able to see them in the German Historical Museum. We should mention that the German Historical Museum on Unter den Linden in the former arsenal. Yes, it's it's a fantastic uh, museum. It basically divides up German history into four sections. I'd say pick your section if you're going to go there. If you want the Cold War, just go for that bit. You have some phenomenal artifacts there. You've got the globe that was in Hitler's office. You've got his desk. Uh, without wanting to focus on the Nazis too much, right. you have some amazing section on Nazi history. And it's unique because the Germans tend not to memorialise the Nazi era. There are very few mu- museums. There are, in fact, no museums devoted to Nazi history. Right. Uh, they call them documentation centres now. Docu-centres. And I've seen yeah. these docu-centres all over Germany now. that You didn't see them a generation ago, but now... I I don't know, there's enough historical distance. Holger, what's the struggle uh, psychologically for the German people to actually 
make a museum or a documentation center about the, the Nazi experience? Yeah, I think it's not really a struggle. I mean, of course, for the first part, we don't want a site where people go as a pilgrimage thing. That's right. just so not, Hitler's not bunker it. spot will forever be just a yes, ig ignored uh, nothing lot. There's nothing, nothing there. there. There's just now they put up a little plaque, like mm. a little. You can see it was here, but like, of course, like no one wants to remember this as like, hey, there was great things going on. Not at all. So one, actually, one thing I find very striking in memorial is the topographie des terrors, the topography of terror. Mm. It's right next to the old building we just talked about. And it basically is, there is actually nothing really there because it was completely destroyed. But it is, you see the foundations of the former like a Gestapo SS kind of headquarters. So it was pulverized by bombs probably it's, because it was the Gestapo headquarters. Exactly. And so, but you, you basically, what you see is like you can go down to the foundations. You just see just a little bit of brickwork basically right. along the walls. But you know, and there is a you know very good exhibition about that. You know that these underground kind of cellars right. were used to imprison and torture people from the Gestapo. Gestapo was like the secret service or the secret police right. within the uh, National Socialist State. Powerful exhibit there in English. Absolutely. And it's something if you want to uh, understand the 20th century story of, of Germany, you got to go to that topography of terror. We'll open the phone lines in a minute at 877-333-7425 as Maisie and Holger help us explore 20th century Berlin. By email, we're at radio at ricksteves.com. A little later, we'll visit with a travel writer who lived in Romania while researching guidebooks about Eastern Europe. Since Romania joined the European Union 10 years ago, it's emerged as Europe's latest backdoor destination for affordable travel. You're listening to Travel with Rick Steves. From Germany's surrender after World War I on November 11, 1918, to the fall of the Berlin Wall on November 9, 1989, there's a lot to remember at this time of year in Germany. Right now on Travel with Rick Steves, we're looking at what you can explore in Berlin from the city's turbulent 20th century with local guides Maisie Hitchcock and Holger Zimmer. And we're taking your calls at 877-333-7425. Tom's on the line in Duluth, Georgia. Tom, thanks for your call. I was in the uh, Army, uh, U.S. Army, in what used to be West Berlin. Uh, when I was there, we never thought that the wall would come down. I was there in the early 70s. We thought it was there forever, basically. What kind of memories do you teach in school about the Nazis when you talk about the Nazis? What, what kind of things do you tell each other? Or Yeah, that's a good point there. Thanks for your call. Really what we do in schools, and this is what I've been through in my school time, we learn about, like, the rise of Hitler to power. We know, like, what are the economic situations? You know, what, what about people unemployed? What about, like, poverty? What about, you know, migration at the time? And then we know, like, hey, this is suddenly, there's uh, this guy, and, you know, he makes things happen, and, you know, the Germans fall for that, really. So we do hear about the, the sources, about the reasons why things were happening, and then, of course, also how quickly the whole regime of terror was established, not only within Germany, but also then, of course, uh, spreading out and turning into a full-blown Second World War. So we do hear actually quite a lot about what was the psyche at the time, why did it happen, and, you know, also for us to learn from that we should not let this happen ever again. Thanks for your insights, Tom. That's very thought-provoking, especially with your experience there. Thanks for your call. You're welcome. Bye now. Thank you. So, Holger, do I understand what you're saying is that Germany realizes that you have to have an environment for an extremist movement to grow and to, to look at what makes the ground fertile for, for such a, a wrong direction for a society to take. Exactly, yeah. What's the, like, what's the role of the media? What's the role of 
people just being disenfranchised and all of that. So it really is, I think we, I don't know, I can't boast like, hey, we're good at this, but we really try to teach our kids and to teach basically everyone in Germany, you know, where have we been coming from and why did this most atrocious, you know, thing that just completely devastated the whole of Europe, why did it happen and how did we as Germans play a big part in that? And really, we would love to learn from that. I think that's part of the, the spirit of the Questions of German History exhibit, is looking how on earth could the country that led the world in Nobel Peace Prize winners or poets or musicians and so on suddenly go down this road. And it, it doesn't just happen out of the blue. There's an environment created by events that preceded that. And we can learn from that. Yeah. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Macy Hitchcock and Holger Zimmer about the communist and the Nazi heritage of Berlin and how it applies to us travelers. Our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. And Joan emails us from Alta in California. And Joan writes, the Stasi archives in Berlin have reconstructed the shredded files of many citizens during the Cold War. Are all of the files reconstructed and is there more to be done? It's such a fascinating story and, and one that many Americans are unaware of. Is it true that because of this dark page in history that Berlin is now a place that highly guards personal privacy? Holger. Good question. Actually, yes. So to answer the first question, the Stasi files basically were the documents that the East German secret state police collected about their citizens, you know, just in order to kind of know is there someone who is opposing the regime. And that was like so many people actually worked for that ministry, the, the Staatssicherheit and collected data like like just little, let's say a 17-year-old was picking up a guitar and strumming a song and he suddenly would be on file and on record and get problems in school or maybe get thrown in prison just for that. So there was a you know big regime and they just, they were frantic at collecting data. And so when, when the change came over and they, actually the people of Berlin came and stormed the building and say, you got to get out, you're done for now, you're, you're not in power anymore, the people frantically tried to destroy them. They had the shredders going all night long. I, I saw these shredders, they just... They just, you know, kind of exploded because there were so much documents they tried to destroy. It didn't quite work. But a lot of that is there. So they had these Put sacks full of, full of paper. And now people are really in a painful, slow process by hand. And also now they're trying a, developing a software as we speak. I think what's the estimation? I think it probably might take another 40 years or so to try to get these single files together. Does Berlin now have a spirit of guarding and, and protecting personal privacy after this Stasi experience? Very much so. And not just Berlin. I think all over Germany all were very Germany. much concerned with like being spied upon, like who reads our emails, you know, why are people monitoring our calls, you know. I mean, that's something that we are very much concerned about. Macy, in your tour guiding, you do Cold War walks. Let's go from the Nazi period to the next challenge of Berlin. And if you're welcoming a visitor to Berlin and want to take them on a walk that introduces them to physical remnants of the Cold War, briefly describe what you might see in Berlin. Well, I think, I think you might start off at a place called the Palace of Tears, Tränenpalast, which is an old building right next to Friedrichstraße in the centre of Berlin, north of Checkpoint Charlie, which was the old border crossing, the Allied border crossing. And uh, the Tränenpalast was a place where a building that you went back into once you'd visited East Berlin. And now it's basically been turned into a museum. It's a free museum, which was in the east, but it was partly run by the west. It was and a border this humanises crossing. the reality that there were families split by the wall. Yes, and yeah. the, the heartbreak of going through all of this humiliating security just in order to see your sister, yep. and then going back to the west. Hence the name, Palace of Tears. Uh, it was a place for a lot of emotional goodbyes, especially when the Berlin Wall was first built. A lot of people didn't know they were going to see each other again. Mm. 
It wasn't until the early 70s that actually Willy Brandt, the West German Chancellor, was involved in relaxing relations between mm-hmm. East and West. But before then, you might see your mum at Christmas and then not see her again for a mm-hmm. year. So it was a very emotional place. What else would people have on their list to imagine and visualize what it was like living in a divided city during communism? Well, I think you'd go from the Palace of Tears, a nice route is to go up to Banauerstrasse, uh, which is where you have the memorial to the Berlin Wall. It's, you know, it's a long section of the Berlin Wall. But in addition to that, you have a new memorial. It's a reconstruction of part of the wall. Uh, and what's interesting about Banauerstrasse is the street basically is in the west and the buildings which would have stood on that street were actually demolished to make way for the wall were in the east. And when the Berlin Wall went up in the first few days, you had people throwing themselves out of the mm. buildings on the facade of Benauerstrasse into the west to escape until the East Germans blocked up the windows uh, and eventually just demolished the buildings. Now, you call it the Berlin Wall, but if you were a communist in the communist part of Berlin, what would you call it? You'd call it the anti-fascist protection barrier. Heedless of danger, from fourth and fifth floor windows, from any hatchway open to escape, they flee. This woman drops into a net held by alerted firemen. And then, as a tense crowd watches, she is followed by her husband. But first, he throws out a few prized possessions. It was protecting its people from uh, fascism from 1961 to 1989. Absolutely. And here in the what's it called the Wall Memorial, you can actually see the structure of the wall. Yes. It's more complicated than just a wall. Yeah, it's not just a wall. Basically, what you have is you have the wall itself, which is nothing. It's three and a half meters tall. When you look at it, you think, I could kind of pole vote over that thing. No problem. But what you actually have is you have a, a kind of primary wall quite a few hundred yards away, creating something called the death strip. And what they've done at Benauerstrasse is to partially recreate this death strip. So you have a fence you have to get over. So you're on the eastern side. You've got to get over your electric barbed wire fence, which has alarms attached to it. You land on a spike plate. Once you're over that, uh, you've got to get past tank traps. Then you're walking across raked gravel so they can see every footstep you've taken because the Stasi are always watching you. They're always checking what's happening. If you escape, they want to recreate your escape and see how you did it and stop it from happening again. Then you've got to get past your border guards, your dogs on uh, leads. It's, a, you know, it's basically a kind of horrible assault course. And that was the Berlin Wall in its later stage. Uh, and it was pretty much impossible to get across by the end. As the communist barrier between East and West Berlin grows higher and stronger, the more determined grows the will of those in the East to escape. Along the border, East Berliners are forced to evacuate their homes as the communist police move to prevent their escape. Can you explain about the ghost stations? The ghost stations, uh, when the Berlin Wall was built, you obviously have an existing transport network, and that's cut in half by the wall. And the East Germans, always after hard currency, decided they would let uh, the Westerners continue on their Western lines, uh, which would basically get a line starting in the south, and it goes up north, and it goes through part of the east on its way. It might be only three stations. Uh, but the deal was you got into the eastern sector, be an announcement on the train, last station stop in the west, then the train would slow down as you went through the eastern stations and these stations were known as ghost stations because all the entrances and exits were blocked to prevent people from the east trying to get down into those stations and jumping on these western trains. So you'd see cobwebs and the silhouette of an east German guard. And border guards walking up and down slowly looking in menacingly with their Kalashnikovs in their arms. And it was basically just a a means of intimidation. I've talked to former border guards about it and that's all it was about. After Berlin was reunited, suddenly they reopened these things. And in the interest of history, I think they've kept a lot of them with the same ambience they had from before this time. I remember this, like when I was in Berlin in the 80s, going on the underground and suddenly like the train 
would slow down and you would go through these stations it's all kind of gray and you think like wow what is happening you're kind of in a no man's land and then uh, you know the next stop on the western side would be colorful and you could get up and get, get off again but this is something and now I mean, for us Berliners, we live there and we use these stations that are now opened again every day. But it's good to remember. It's a reminder, isn't yes, it? Yes, it's a like, reminder. This, this has been blocked like for like, what is it, 20 odd years. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about the Nazi and communist heritage of Berlin from a traveler's point of view. We're visiting with Holger Zimmer and Macy Hitchcock. Holger, you live in this former eastern uh, communist zone. Macy was just talking about the no man's land along the wall. And there's a huge and vibrant park now, sort of laughing at the wall and its history. Talk about the Mauer Park. Yeah, that is a very fascinating part of the city. Now very, let's say, hip and trendy, and people go there. It's like young people, anyone, like on a Saturday and a Sunday, they would just go there. It's a long strip because it was along the wall where the wall had stood. And now it is very vibrant. There's actually a nice uh, kind of a slope going a little bit up the hill. And up there, there are swings, you know, like you can you so, can just swing along. You have the open air. You look over what was the former west and you're back to the former east. And it's really amazing. It's just a good hangout to talk and meet with friends. And there's a little kind of like open air amphitheater. Suddenly, like every Sunday... There's something like an open-air karaoke done by a really cool guy from Dublin, actually. The Bear Pit Karaoke, they call it. It's open-air, and there's like, I don't know, every Sunday, like, thousand people just a thousand out there. people. It's it must for be the free. biggest karaoke. It's amazing. Like, everyone comes and sings. So, And really, it's a reminder of, hey, this is where the border guards with watchdogs, with, where the, the patrol cars would go, and suddenly it's open, it's free, and Berliners and tourists alike, they use it and they love it. It must be psychologically just sort of satisfying to have your crazy carnival party there in what was the death strip, Mauer Park, the Wall Park. And above it all, you've got a remnant still standing of the Berlin Wall, and it really is just a, a concrete canvas for people to spray paint. That's it now. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're joined by Macy Hitchcock and Holger Zimmer. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Michael's calling from Denver. Michael, thanks for your call. Oh, thank you. One of the things that Berlin was uh, known for during the Cold War was spies. And many of the tourists can see where I worked as an as electronic spy in the early 1970s for the, for the U.S. Army. And uh, that is, if, if they look to the west, they'll see Teufelsburg uh, Hill, a mountain. And on top of that, they'll see a large building with three large domes that, that contained our... Uh, antenna that we use for intercepting uh, Soviet and East German signals. Teufelsberg means Devil's Mountain, and of course, the reason it got that name was that it was built as an artificial mountain built out of the rubble from uh, the bombing of Berlin during World War II. And it's the highest point in Berlin, so of course, that's why they picked it for uh, hmm. building an installation to, to intercept electronic signals. You can especially see the building from the top of the Reichstag. So if tourists go to the top of the Reichstag in central Berlin and look to the west, they'll see this building very clearly. Wow, and, uh, powerful. Michael, when you were there as an electronic spy, what did you hear? Well, I can't, I can't really tell you. <laughs> oh, come on, nobody's uh, listening. No, it, basically, uh, it was East German and uh, Soviet military uh, radios. So, Michael, that is interesting. That was, uh, must have been 30, 40 years ago. You still cannot say what you heard, even this long after. Well, yes. Uh, electronic intelligence is the most uh, highly guarded secret. Okay. 
Well, you have my phone number if you want to call me and never chat a while. <laughs> we were sort of the sacrificial lambs. The, the U.S. Army in Berlin was one brigade of infantry soldiers and one tank company, which means 25 tanks, to defend the city. And we were surrounded by something like 10 Soviet divisions. So if, if war had broken out, you would have been the first to go. That's absolutely right. <laughs> wow. There was no way we could defend ourselves or the city or anyone else. We would have been overrun uh, immediately. Michael, I, had a, I have a question for you, though. I know you can't talk much, but like, did you have an idea that the wall would be coming down? Was that something that you would kind of sense in your kind of, you know? No, no. I mean, I, you know, I grew up in the 50s, and I was in Berlin in, in the early 70s. And uh, the mentality, I think, of, of most people was, you know, this was a permanent fixture. There was no way that, you know, the division of East and West was going to go away any, anytime soon. Well, Michael, thank you for the, the service and being there, knowing you, you really were the, the bulwark of, uh, of freedom as we went, you know, head-to-head with two ideologies. And thank God we got through it without a hot war. Absolutely. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking about the Nazi and communist heritage of Berlin from a traveler's perspective, and we've been joined by two guides from Berlin, Holger Zimmer and Macy Hitchcock. Holger, let's uh, wrap up this conversation with just a, a special image that a, a visitor might have in Berlin that would give him a, a little better understanding of the communist heritage that, that we've come out of in the last 25 years. Yeah, very interesting and wonderful, um, I think, part of the city is the whole, that was called Stalin Alley. I mean, they built it in the 50s to really kind of get uh, the impression of like Moscow Boulevard. And so it really is in a style of like the empire style, they call it, you know, modeled after the Russian model. And you, so what you, you find in Moscow or something. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So you can drive down this boulevard. It's, it's huge. It really is like, I don't know, three lanes, you know, one way for cars and then, you know, for pedestrians. And it's amazing. It's really big. It makes you huge think you're part of a communist utopia. Yes, it is. And it looks, to me, it looks still kind of beautiful and interesting because the style is just, you know, made to impress, mm -hmm. you know. And uh, so you can, you know, ride a bike there and just walk and be completely impressed. You could think like, hey, I'm in Moscow right as we speak, but this is a part of Berlin. So quite interesting architecture, actually quite cool flats to live in these so days. So as far as you can see, a grand boulevard lined by uniform apartment blocks, maybe eight or ten stories tall, with wonderful relief panels that celebrate the hard work and commitment of the people, the dictatorship of the proletariat. Stalin Ali. Yeah. Now it's called, is it called Marx Ali now? It's called Kamax Ali, no? Macy, what would be a, a another image of the communist age that we could uh, actually find thought-provoking today? Well, I actually think while you're on Karl Marx Alley, there's several places you can go. There's not that much left of the Cold War in terms of, you know, places you can go to. But you could possibly visit a little ensemble at the start of the Karl Marx Alley, which is the Café Moscow. And you can see a big mural which illustrates all the people from the Soviet republics and that used to contain a restaurant which was divided into subsections. So you had your Kazakhstan restaurant, you had your Ukraine restaurant. And then across the road, you've got the kind of showcase cinema of the GDR, uh, which is the Kino International, which is still open. And that's a fantastic kind of cubist structure. It's very grand. Uh, you can wander up inside, sit down in the cafe, and it's got this kind of people's palace style about it. And if you sit in the central row of seats, you're sitting where the elite of the GDR would sit during uh, film premieres. And it's got a real feeling of the Cold War about it. So the communist it. elites back in the 70s and yes, early 80s. Yes, yeah. So yeah. Eric, you might be, you know, Honey, as they call him, Eric Honecker's seat. You might be sitting in his seat. They're very uncomfortable seats, though, I have to say. But it's a fantastic place to really feel the Cold War. Maisie and Holger, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Remember, these people are risking their very lives 
taste something we too often take for granted, liberty. Und drei Fische, der hat Zähne, und die trägt er im Gesicht. Und mein Kies, der hat ein Messer, doch das Messer sieht man nicht. It's still something of a living folk museum at bargain prices where you can still get a taste of traditional rural life as it's been lived for generations. We'll look at Romania next on Travel with Rick Steves. European investment in Romania is turning the country into one of Europe's bargain destinations for travelers. Life Pedersen got to know what makes Romania special while doing research there for Lonely Planet. He writes about one of the country's most famous sons, a notorious 15th century prince with an imposing castle near the Transylvanian border, in his book called Backpacking with Dracula. Life, thanks for joining us. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. How did you end up writing uh, for Lonely Planet guidebooks on Romania? What's your connection with Romania? Uh, ooh, a girl <laughs> that I met okay. while I was living in Spain, and then she took me home to meet the family, and I spent the summer there. And it just so happened at the exact same time Lonely Planet was trying to recruit a new Romania author. So I applied, and next thing I knew, I was in the author pool. So you meet a, a Romanian girl in Spain, and she takes you home to meet the family. Where yep. did she live, and what was that like? She lived in a, in a city in the northeast called Yash, which is actually very near the border with the Republic of Moldova. Not the most touristy city, so I was uh, definitely, I, was, I stuck out. I bet. What was it like sitting down to dinner with them? It was challenging at first. Uh, I did eventually gain a certain amount of fluency in Romanian, but the first three, four months, uh, it was mostly just pantomime and smiling and nodding. <laughs> <laughs> I was just there a couple months ago, and the food was delightful, and one of the staples yeah. was uh, polenta, which was surprising to me. Yeah, there's all kinds of twists on that. Everyone is proud of their polenta recipe. Yeah, every family has their polenta and their fire water also. Talk a little bit yes, about the fire water. I'm sure you had fire water. Oh. They have fire water with the salad. They serve it right with the meal. Yeah, it's a big deal there. So it's kind of legal, but not legal, especially now that they've joined the EU. But Romanians are allowed to make a certain amount of their very own homemade brandy. The limit is like ridiculously large, like gallons. So everyone has a family member out in the countryside that makes this. And so they bring it home. And so everybody in the city has a couple of jugs of this laying around. And it's almost inevitably brought out every time guests are over. That is an issue when a country joins the EU. A lot of its most treasured traditions are actually threatened because they don't meet the hygiene standards. Yeah. Well, that somehow got grandfathered in. Uh, unfortunately, the horse-drawn carts didn't fare as well. They're being slowly pushed out. When you travel in Romania, it is, in some cases, like you're traveling through an open-air folk museum, and you feel like, where's yeah. the admission turnstile? <laughs> but it's just, this is real life here. And that was what was so striking with me. Uh, but first of all, let's just cover the nitty-gritty. How is it different from traveling in France or, or Germany? Is it wide open? Are there any special pitfalls that we should be aware of? The, the sense is that it's uh, a lot more wild. Even in my own lonely planet, it was referred to as the Wild West of Eastern Europe. Um, and that may have been true in the early aughts, but they joined the EU in 2007. There's been a lot of improvements with the infrastructure. The roads aren't nearly as <laughs> disastrous as they once were. So I wouldn't say there's anything special you should do to prepare. There's still a small element of just like pickpocketing, but you know, that's present in Barcelona, Rome, all mm -hmm. that other stuff. It's surprisingly safe. Violent crime is surprisingly rare. 
Our guest on Travel with Rick Steves is Leif Pedersen. He's introducing us to the Romania he came to love while living there to research several Lonely Planet guidebooks. He's written Backpacking with Dracula to describe the central role of Vlad the Impaler, the Prince of Wallachia, in Romania's history and tourism. You can read many of Life's travel articles on his website called killingbatteries.com. I want to talk about Dracula in just a minute, but let's start with the capital city, uh, Bucharest. In a nutshell, how would you describe Bucharest? It's constantly changing. When I first visited Bucharest, I hated it. It was my most hated city in Europe for a long time. I agree. Yeah, the, the signage was... You couldn't even find the train station. That's how bad the signage was. And I just bad-mouthed it for years. Uh, and I finally came around. I mean, the museums there are outstanding. And, you know, in terms of a European capital, it's probably got the best bang for your buck. Hotels, hostels, taxis, super cheap. I was struck by just the cacophony, the visual clutter of architecture. And it's just all these different styles from the late 19th century right through the 20th century. And uh, a city that is, you know, it's a huge city, getting its act together. And at night, you wander through the newly pedestrianized night zones and all sorts of very trendy people are out. And it's just a crazy sort of bohemian chic kind of scene that really surprised me when I was thinking of Bucharest. Eastern Europe in general really cherishes their nights out. And so, you know, once they got the means, they really blew it out of the water. You know, it just kind of like Bratislava before them and, and Prague, obviously, ages ago. But they, they're they serious. And Catching the, the nightclub scene is big. Yeah. The most striking thing, Life, I found about Bucharest was, of course, the heritage of their megalomaniac dictator, Nikolai Ceausescu. He literally impoverished the country because he wanted to build this massive palace. I think it's the biggest building in Europe, inspired by megalomaniacs in North Korea. Yeah, I I personally, I have a a grudge against that place. If I'm not mistaken, it is the third largest public building in the world. I think the Pentagon is a little larger, but it is enormous. And when you take the tours, you're just seeing a tiny fraction of it. And I think only about 70% of it is actually in use. There's large parts of it that is just empty. I think the government is in there somewhere. I mean, I think the government needs (laughs) in there, but it's so big. I tell you, there is absolutely nothing like it. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Life Pedersen. His book is Backpacking with Dracula. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. You can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. And Heidi's on the line from San Diego. Heidi, thanks for your call. Well, we just returned from living in Romania for a year. We have three small children, and it was a wonderful experience. So we bought a car, and we drove all throughout the country, Transylvania to the Danube Delta. Um, we were based mostly in southern Romania near the Danube, but it was a wonderful experience, um, kind of like a kid heaven. We had a house with a yard, and kids run around and play outside, and they're very kid-friendly. Romanians don't have a lot of children, maybe one, maybe two. Um, I have three, so parents would stop me. How do you do it with three children? And grandparents <laughs> would congratulate me for having so many children. Very, very family-friendly. What What is the culture there as far as uh, welcoming strangers or making them feel at home? Well, strangers are, in general, very hospitable. But Americans especially, they loved Americans. We went to a lot of places in Transylvania and such that have a lot of tourists. But we also went many places that don't get a lot of tourists, particularly Americans. Uh, for example... Uh, we went to the ruins at Suchadava, just north of the Danube. It's a Roman fortress. It's, you could just walk around the whole thing. So we did with our kids, explored it. And a lady from the village came and saw that we were there and showed us around for a little bit for 20 minutes. And then she apologized because she had to run home to get her bread out of the oven. Uh, but she invited us to come to our house 
to have some bread. So we said, well, of course. Of sure. course, yeah. So, so we walked down the street, and she went back in the garden and took the coals off this pit in the ground and took some bread out, and we sat down, and she told us all about her family. And I've been all over Europe, lived in many countries, but I've never experienced hospitality from a complete stranger like that. And she told us about her family, and we all had hot bread from the coal oven. Mm. It was pretty incredible. You know, there's something about travel in Romania that if you're good with serendipity, it can be one of the greatest places to travel because there's all sorts of hidden little memories and experiences like that, and you just got to make them happen. Little side roads, yeah, man in a cart, pulled over the road when he saw us. I think we're doing a bathroom break on the side of the road or something. And he, he pulled his cart over and offered us a gallon of milk. He was on his way somewhere with his milk, his fresh milk, but he gave us a gallon. Now, with a family of five, you would have found that the prices, comparing to what you'd spend in Italy or Germany, must have things must have been much more accessible. Oh, absolutely. So we would go to a bakery that had really nice whole wheat German bread, a whole loaf, and it was the equivalent of a dollar. And that was the expensive loaf. The top-end you know? top loaf, yeah. Well, Heidi, thanks for your call. Oh, you're very welcome. I hope all your travelers enjoy Romania. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Life Pedersen, and we're talking with our listeners about Romania. Life's book is Backpacking with Dracula. Hey, Life, let's talk a little bit about Dracula, because if you drive for two or three hours uh, west from Bucharest, you go over the uh, mountains, and you come to the castle that tourists always call the Dracula Castle. Tell me just in a nutshell about Vlad Tepish. His history is a little fuzzy. There was an enormous amount of research I needed to do to just kind of pull apart the fact, legend, and fiction on Vlad when I was researching my book. He uh, was a 15th century prince of Wallachia. And at the time, Wallachia was kind of like this grape in between the two monstrous powers of the Ottoman Empire and the Hungarian Empire. So they, they were just constantly in danger of being overrun or being the apocalyptic wasteland if those two decided to go head to head. And so he was in an impossible situation. And he really had no choice but to just, especially as the Ottomans started encroaching, he went at it. He, he gave it his all. And it, it happened to be the 15th century when uh, morals were different and lots and lots of killing and genocide was the norm for solving problems. And he was extremely good at it. And that's how he got his nickname, the Impaler. His favorite way to end a guy's life was to impale them because it was the longest, most agonizing way to kill a guy. And, mm. and it worked. He literally scared away Mehmed the Conqueror with his with his atrocities. He's really done more than anybody I've ever talked to to make Dracula feel like he's a reasonable guy. You, you know, because he's <laughs> he's defending his little tribe between Ottomans and Hungarians, and they're going to all meet a grisly fate if they don't defend themselves. And and he did it, pedal to the metal. So that was a, a real historical character, Vlad Tepish. Yeah, Tepish means impaler. His his full name was Vlad Dracula. Oh, that's it. Oh my goodness. Yeah, Tepish means the impaler. It was the he got that nickname after he died. Now, when we were there making our TV show, the tourist board was very reluctant for us to do uh, a little bit on the Roma community or the gypsies in Romania. It's a big part of the society, though, and we wanted to show it. What's your take from a, a exploring Romania point of view on the Roma community? Well, I think it's just like any group of folks that have built up a, a bad reputation. It's all based on a handful of near-do-wells. You know, uh, across Europe, you'll see a room of people that are basically just kind of loitering and, and doing petty theft. And, and that's not just the Roma community, but all of Romania has taken it on the chin. They, people in Europe, especially the UK now, there's this big backlash, and that's just not representative of Romanians mm -hmm. or the Roma. You know, it's just a tiny little fraction of that population. Yeah. 
I thought it was a beautiful dimension of uh, Romanian society. The whole country is full of fascinating uh, ethnic stories. And in one place I, I really found that was up in Maramoresh, which is in the far northern fringe, right? It just borders Ukraine. And in Maramoresh, if you want to see horse carts and, and people out in the fields and goat herds and sheep herds making their cheese, staying in a farmhouse B&B, there's no place like Maramoresh. Oh, it's absolutely a time travel, time warp area. Not, it should be pointed out there, they're not doing that for the love of the culture. It's just, it's very poor area. And it's just because of the lack of money and they just haven't had the infrastructure and the same kind of progress as the rest of the country. But uh, for people wanting to just get a taste of what you know peasant era Europe was like, I, it's, you'd be hard pressed to figure out what century you're in in some of these villages. In Western Europe, you go to an open air folk museum, you pay admission to go in and there's women with aprons and, and you know men are chopping wood and, and it's just all a little faux medieval community. You go to Maramarsh, oh, this is the real thing. And, and the great yeah. thing is the natural local hospitality because you just walk down the street and people invite you in. It's like we were talking with Heidi earlier, and, and you're having bread right out of the oven, and you're watching them spin their, their beautiful fabric and oh, running their water mills. Like Heidi, I had a lot of those serendipitous encounters, and part of that was because hitchhiking is still a legitimate way to get around in Romania, especially rural Romania where there's no buses, no other options. So while I was driving around the country doing my Lonely Planet stuff, I would always pick up hitchhikers. And just some of them would only be in the car to get to the next village. And some of them, they'd be in the car for like an hour or more. And it was always interesting. And little old ladies would always bless me so that I would be safe on the road. Travel writer Life Pedersen is telling us about Romania right now on Travel with Rick Steves. This week's show notes include a link to his earlier appearance on the show with more details about Vlad Dracula. And we talk about the German influence over parts of Romania in a web extra this week. It's all at ricksteves.com radio. Andy's calling in from Seattle. Hi, Andy. Hi there, Rick. I've always appreciated the way you've talked about engaging in the culture as deeply as you can. And I wanted to say one thing about my experience in Romania that will always stick with me. This was 15 years ago. I was there for USAID on a project. I was staying in a hotel, which was magically priced at exactly the $120 a day that USAID offered. I wondered if I could instead stay with a family, and indeed I could, as long as I had a receipt. So instead, I stayed with a family whose pension was $30 a month. And so every night I stayed with them, they got the equivalent of four months' salary. They were so indebted because of this and so grateful that they welcomed me, welcomed the families and relatives, took me all around the country on various trips. I ate all their meals, and it got to enjoy their culture in a way I never could have had I stayed in the antiseptic hotel, which was where USAID expected me to stay. So taking advantage of opportunities to get to know people deeply in that way turns out to really enrich one's experience. Because of this, I'm still in touch with the family uh, 50 years later quite regularly. Were there any sites that helped you better connect with the traditional culture? I think one of the most interesting was a place called the Village Museum, which is this huge multi-acre site in Bucharest, where they have apparently brought in examples of the housing from around the country, people in native garb. I was there on such a hot day that I could hardly stand up, but it was so engaging that I went 
back the next day and the next day <laughs> because I learned so much about the culture by visiting these little communities. And that's in the capital city, right in Bucharest. So in Bucharest. even even on a quick visit, you can, in a sense, travel around the country by going to this huge park and seeing traditional dwellings brought together there from all over Romania. Absolutely, and people were in their native garb and playing native instruments, and you got to see the variety of the country in just a few hours. It was really spectacular. Hey, Life, have you been to that museum? Yeah, I love it. It's one of my favorite things to do in Bucharest. Well, thanks, Andy, for your uh, sharing, and I'll remember that Village Museum in Bucharest. You bet. Thanks. Okay, bye now. Life, for me, the highlight of my, my experience in Romania was Mara Marsh, and the churches in Mara Marsh, where communities came together in beautiful ways. I'll never forget going into one church where it was carpeted with little carpets that were all handmade and donated by parishioners, and the wall was filled with embroideries that people had lovingly done. The Romanians are, are deeply religious. The, the Orthodox community, I think it's something like 92% of the country are Orthodox, and they, they are very serious about it still. There's some debate about it, actually, because a lot of money still gets thrown into church construction and things like that when it could be going to, you know, other things, infrastructure. But in the North, it is, uh, in these villages, you know, the whole village just, just kind of revolves around the, the church, and, and these churches have been there for centuries, you know, so there's a proud, there's a sense of just kind of like rallying around this incredibly ancient thing that's all their own. And you, you go into the town, and if you're on your own, you can just wander in, and usually the church will be locked, but you just kind of ask the first person you run into on the road, and they'll know who has the key and where they are at that very moment. And you go fetch them, and they, and they let you in. They, they're happy to show these churches off. They're very proud, and it, the community just rallies around them. So, Life, one thing I was struck by is, is how impressive the infrastructure is. There's not a lot of traffic out in the countryside, but there's roads everywhere now. And it makes the culture accessible. Can you think of one little fun serendipitous moment that would remind us that when we're traveling around a place like Romania, you got to get out and connect with the people? Uh, yes, I have the perfect story. I was in the car with friends that had just come from the United States to visit. And we were driving through Transylvania. This guy had a, just a rickety table on the side of the road in the middle of nowhere with a bunch of bottles of colored liquid. So we pulled over, of course. What is that? And it was a variety of liqueurs he'd made at his farm. And we ended up just having a little tasting right on the side of the road there. All, all these different things made of different fruit. And my friends just blew their minds. Wow. So you meet a guy with a rickety table with a bunch of colored liquids and mismatched bottles. And you say, hey, let's have a tasting. <laughs> yep. There's not going to be anything wrong with that. And we, we had a great time. And that's a lesson, I think, especially in a country like Romania. To, you know, if you see something interesting, stop the car, get out and connect with the people. There's, there's no other country, I've been, and I've been all over Europe driving myself too, and there's no other country where that kind of thing happens. That's the beauty of Romania. Life Pedersen, author of Backpacking with Dracula, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton, Sarah McCormick, and Isaac kaplan Wolner at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks for studio help this week from WBFO in Buffalo. You'll find links to our guests and the notes for each week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. And we'll look for you again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Each year, Rick Steves tour guides take thousands of free-spirited travelers on escorted tours through Europe one small group at a time. 
This year, you can choose from more than 40 different vacations in Europe's best destinations, from Ireland to Greece and practically everywhere in between. Begin your next trip at ricksteves.com.